Section 22 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20, Part 1. Trier. We had been in four countries that day, I thought, with the shiver of globe-trotting pride as I turned in that night. From a bed in Paris it was that I had arisen that morning. In the course of the day we had passed through Belgium, looked in at the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, and, misliking it, had packed into the train again and come across the frontier back into Germany. We could truly say that morning, when we paid our bill in Paris, we were all unwitting that we should sleep in Germany. That was the fun of it. Our country drew us unknowingly to its bosom. Luxembourg was a fraud. Joseph Leopold had always had a weakness for Luxembourg. It is small and independent, a buffer state between two great antagonistic powers, a capital that has never been taken. For that it has to thank its impregnable position. It has a coinage, a set of postage stamps, quite nice and suitable little laws. Nobody ever seems to be naughty there, and nobody makes trouble. Nobody is looking for it. And so we went to Luxembourg. We got out of the train about one o'clock, and says Joseph Leopold, picturesquely recounting the tale of our brief descent upon the city, I gave one wild scream and desired to brush its mud from off my boots at once. I did not scream. I sniffed and said that Luxembourg was to me like a place in a dream, an ugly dream of suburbia. That was all I said then. And although I have been driven to mention the particular district of suburban London of which Luxembourg reminds me, I will not do so again, because a distinguished novelist of my acquaintance lives there and has protested. We spent in this truly blessed town two hours, and in that short space I realised what the perfect state, as designed by a radical House of Commons, and which by means of insurance bills and other forms of grandmotherly legislation they are now hoping to inaugurate in good old naughty England, would be like. It is also the poet Wordsworth's personal ideal multiplied by numbers. Quote, to sit without ambition, hope or aim, and listen to the flapping of the flame and kettles singing its faint undersong. Unquote. And one pictures the inhabitants of this dignified city socially a cut above wordsworth and the cottage at rydal sitting behind stucco marbled pilasters in gardens full of pot shrubs listening to the sudden jar of the embers in the heated stoves eating indigestible cakes and meditating their reasonable alliances their gentle business bargains their seasonable deaths or simply thinking of nothing at all this may not be so I do not state it as a fact for one moment. I was in no private house of Luxembourg except a mild cafe, 
a quiet post office, a respectable church. But I seem to feel this sort of thing going on in the white plastered houses, ensconced in gardens full of shrubs, behind reticulated stuccoed balustrades, like A Road or, let us say, Palace Gardens. Both streets where even Art Nouveau has not penetrated. It may not be, but I think that no Luxembourgeois will be capable of crime, splendid crime at least. History only records one crime, and that is a mean one. The bastard of Luxembourg sold Joan of Arc to the English for a few hundred crowns. The reason Luxembourg has never been taken is its position, coupled with its want of importance. The town is situated on a vast rambling series of hills, surrounded by a sort of wide natural moat, approached by long bridges built over the valley from all sides. Two rivers, flowing right through, would connect it in case of a siege with the material resources of the outer world. But as yet, war has not menaced Luxembourg. The florid gardens of the citizens with their stucco bastions hang over the embattled steep, and the noise of gracefully dripping fountains fills the air. We bought some stamps and some postcards, changed some money and got some Luxembourg coins in exchange. These we took as curiosities. Specimens of them lurk in my purse to this day, wherewith I affront peaceable citizens in England, France and Germany. And then we took the train for a town in Germany, Treves, or Trier, as I'm bound to call it. Trier is more or less a frontier town. There is that feeling about it all the time. One seems to hear the uncertain twittering of embarrassed peoples living on the edge of one civilization where it merges into another. The want of character of the duchy is in dreary juxtaposition to the cranky national idiosyncrasies of a borderland of German people. We got in about eleven o'clock at night. We consumed, naturally, the unfailing Wiener Schnitzel, generally a safe draw in Germany, at the station, and then walked along into the town in search of an hotel indicated by the waiter. It was very dark and dull night. The sight of Trier, to a woman who has never seen Rome, and never hopes to do so, I do not, be it observed, say hopes never to do so, is something stupendous. And Joseph Leopold, who has seen Rome, had just come from thence, in fact, when we entered Trier by the Porta Nigra, was very nearly as deeply impressed as I. We walked from the station. The streets were dark, lighted only by the average city illumination as we approached a slight ditch answering to the raising of the soil's level in the course of two thousand years. And in that ditch we saw a mass of crumbling masonry, huge, portentously old, cruel and jagged-looking. That was all. On our left was the great modern hotel, the Porta Nigra, 
outfacing the town lights with the glare of its restaurant and here was its ancient namesake the great gate of the old roman town of trier dull lonely unlighted two tram lines dipping into the shallow ditch passed round it like an ambulant girdle of light and then coalesced the gate is for all the world like the etoile or the marble arch but it is not riante or commonplace like those two it is grim and sardonic hopeless and left behind majestic in its indifference it has none of the well-to-do spruceness of a gate in which a concierge lives the citizens do well not to light it they merely allow it to be girt round with the rattling glaring evidence of civilization i had never seen anything like it by daylight it is hardly less portentous though the stone looks greyer more powdery and patched in places it reminded me of an old hollow tooth or of another ruin of equal caducity of aspect that is the very oldest tree at burnham beeches and it is quite hollow like those majestic wrecks the custodian's room built in modern medieval times by some dead and gone bishop has fallen also to decay the arched galleries where the roman soldiers walked and sighted arrivals the conning towers whence they flashed their wireless messages are less fritted and crumbled than those trees but as the child said of the elephant it looks so big it can't all of it die there is no reason why these swart ungainly lumps of stone laid together and cemented with the faultless roman mortar should ever disintegrate it is not a flimsy structure like st paul's in london which the loaded trams the underground tubes can shake into disruption i saw once in childhood a picture of the porta nigra in my german history book and i recognized the original with a positive flash of gladness the little cut over mrs markham's twelfth chapter does not give the massive solidity of the heap of stones that came to stay and has stayed and will stay trier was roman and is roman still i felt it there keenly the continuity of races and the basic value of rome just as i do in france at carcassonne in england at old serum and in every place where rome has been has washed in pushing its irresistible tide of conquest one realizes the patient stolid plodding staying power which makes rome seem so young and vital everywhere but in rome there i am told the sense of solidity and endurance have cracked and have been burnt out with the scarifying heat and sun of centuries anyhow one never gets away from rome anywhere else why should one rome is very recent viewed with that strong sense of continuity of time which is mine the first day i was in trier 
I took a walk up the hills on the Luxembourg side. I saw the Monument of Eagle, so like the monument at Saint-Rémy. I passed the Marienzoile, a figure of the Virgin with her crown composed of stars, lit up at night by the town electric works, and placed on a Roman altar to some general or other. I looked on the glancing white low-roofed houses of the plain, the delicate deliberate slope of the arched bridges that spanned the Mosul. I noticed the ferry, the large black cogged boat, worked by pulleys and levers on the Roman system. Then my eyes harked back to pick out the Roman buildings, the Palace of the Caesars, the Basilica, the Porta Nigra, isolated by its ring of tramlines and the faint tracings of the foundations of the baths. The arena is hidden behind a low hill with trees. There is all Rome, its royalty, its religion, its health, its amusements. The basilica is complete and as ugly as it ever was. The small portion of the ruined palace of Constantine seems as important as the whole of any ordinary restored medieval castle. It makes up in massiveness and weight for what it has lost in wall space. It is an empty shell, granted, but the shell of a rock's egg. Or to use another zoological comparison, the rotundities broadening at the base of its four bastions like an elephant's feet seem planted firmly on the soil forever. Yes, seen from the Marian Herr, Trier must have looked those few four hundred years ago when Constantine fighting at Neumagen made his splendid speech, much as it does today. And with characteristic German thoroughness, the worthy dispassionate guidebooks take pains to acquaint one with all the etapes of willful neglect which the vestiges suffered at the hands of the two wanton centuries that preceded our two. This generation is so proud of them. The baths, now they are excavated, are laid out, the different levels accounted for, and the foundations, where not even foundations exist, carefully made, put in the plans sold by the polite custodian. But of the baths themselves there is nothing left but a few props of hypercausts, pillars, and an uneven broken-up floor or so. It reminds one very much of the basement of a large London house after the housebreakers have done their worst. Still in innocent self-damnation, there are given at the back of the plan views of the buildings as they existed two centuries ago. Süd façade, bis zum Jahre 1610, and again Innenaussicht, 1610. Both cuts show fine upstanding groups of masonry rising to one story in most cases sometimes to two portals arches all crumbling but a building still not a basement so it is obvious that up to sixteen ten holes might have been stopped lead roofs put on necessary reparations made a little of the civic money spent whose sum would gladly be doubled tripled by the antiquarian societies of today, best of all, 
the general process of lifting winked at all over the world might have been prevented instead of being encouraged then the stones of trier of carcassonne of borgovicus on the roman wall would not have been filched nowadays they quote, stop a hole to expel the winter's floor unquote, in the cottage of some yokel leaning slavishly against some of the grandest bits of masonry in the world whole villages would not have grown up like toadstools in a forest of arching trees built of stones prigged without manorial or seigneurial reproach from the patient unconsidered ruin nearby but nobody knew or cared anything about antiquities in those two dreadful centuries read giovanni casanova who did his courting of the roman girls quote, dont quelques vieilles mines tombantes great chunks of villa and gate and circus extant then and standable on that have simply disappeared today in those days nature alone was worshipped and not even nature very much on the continent in england a few protests were made by local antiquaries dry as dust inhuman people like certes and rain but strawberry hill gothic was not condemned and walter scott collogued with these vandals in disguise and built abbotsford the arena at trier has in the nature of things not suffered so deeply as the baths there was less to carry off only a circle of stone seats and a couple of chariot entrances for most of the business was conducted below the great circle has been excavated it is all lightly grass-grown the three tiers of seats the two entrances and a half dozen or so of bins at the sides for the wild beasts which the eager crowds looked at and poked up while they waited for the real fun to begin and the victims brought up by the lift to the trap-door and planked down ready for the carnage the zealous german antiquaries have excavated below we went down, led by our old soldier of a guide, into a ghastly pit of shining mud and glassy pools of water, holding in solution all that is left of the original floor of the basement. And in recondite caverns leading off from the main underground parterre, the victims were penned. He was the lift that brought them dazed and brutalised up to the light of day and death. The mouldering joists of the lift machinery are still here. The Roman had every convenience that an inventive, a cool and calculating mind could suggest. It is one of the insane peculiarities of the tempestuous, restless German nature of Joseph Leopold that he is incapable of spending what is called a quiet evening at home. He must be out, and he must drag his womankind out with him too. When we are staying in hotels, there is some justifiable excuse for this course, at all events in German hotels, for in these there is no drawing-room, in its primary sense of withdrawing-room, 
when you have dined or supped you a dame or even a frau have nowhere to retire to except your bedroom or the schreibzimmer now the exceedingly unsociable and grotesque arrangement and appointments of the schreibzimmer would lead one to suppose that every german's correspondence is of a dark and secret nature but one is expected to sit severally in a sort of cubicle or bin and the traitorous movements of one's pen are hidden by a series of glass shields erected between the writer and the tenant of the next compartment there is always the smoking-room i hear someone exclaim i know that my sex frequently does penetrate to this desecrated male holy of holies but that is in the larger hotels where there is of course a drawing-room as well as a lounge and it is pure feminine perversity which suggests a raid on exclusively male quarters but the adventurous female who wishes to follow her husband and share his after-dinner cigarette with him must make up her mind to reverse the proceeding and follow her orpheus in a milder sort of hell rank with tobacco fumes its rough wooden tables littered with shoppen and pools of spilt beer a region whose reigning pluto does not want eurydice at any price it is never done i once saw two hybrid english ladies peering disconsolately into the extremely teneers-like interior of the weinstuber of a certain hotel at trier looking earnestly for the usual stuffy apartment with dull stained glass windows giving on to the mews but glorious within in the style of liberty set with palms whose genesis is wrapped in scarves and dotted with tables bearing travellers bibles and hotel advertisements and pens that won't write what no drawing-room they cried and flounced out so after dinner i put a schleier over my head we go out into the square front of the hotel zur post and turn a corner and find ourselves in one of the little narrow stone-paved streets of which the old town of trier is composed the gables of the houses seem in the dimness to peer down on us and brush our shoulders ten to one after we have been walking for five minutes or two we meet the ambulant police officer with his quiet sullen-looking dog he peeps gently and with no great effect of excessive vigilance down this or that dark valley into dusky entries he examines tall porte-cochere where dusky forms wait and linger the german streets are the constant scene of crime and violence yet though people are nervous they are so distrustful of the police that they subscribe to watchman societies in the hopes of sleeping sounder nights as a matter of fact the german police are dishonest and untrustworthy the post of policeman is the usual appanage of a non-commissioned officer and he is no good having no traditions no point of honour he is utterly unfitted for the responsible post of guardian of the liberty of the subjects of the kaiser end of section twenty two